out. Everybody. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Lights Out Podcast. I'm your host, Josh. As always, I've got my brother and producer, Joel, here in the studio with me as well. And today we are going to be covering one of the craziest cases, I think, of all time, and a truly infamous one at that. And that is the Son of Sam case. Or should I say the Sons of Sam? If you've been on Netflix lately, I'm sure you've probably seen the new Netflix special that came out called The Sons of Sam, A Descent into Darkness. It's a new docu-series about the Son of Sam case. And I gotta say, I watched this and it completely just blew my mind at how much more there is to this case and you know how much more below the surface there really is when it comes to David Berkowitz and you know just the crimes that were committed and just all of the individuals that may be wrapped up into it yeah connections so many moving pieces in this story it gets crazy I mean it's it's a truly mind-blowing case and because it's so large literally the series I think is almost six hours long what I've decided to do because I want to deep dive into all this and I'm even going to go into more things that weren't even in the docu-series because I just find this case so interesting that I want to just explore every, you know, nook and cranny and every rabbit hole there possibly is. Because, oh, yeah. I mean, it goes into we get into cults, we get into satanic rituals. I mean, all possible other killers, serial killers mm-hmm. involved. I mean, there's so many facets to this case that I decided, you know what, we're going to do our first two part episode. So this week we're going to be doing the first part of it, which really focuses on the son of Sam himself. Yep. David Berkowitz and then from there we're going to go down all the different rabbit holes in part two so one part will be released this week and then the next part will be out uh, the following week when the next episode drops if you've never heard of the son of Sam case then you are in for an absolute crazy ride I mean this one is just so deep there's just so many things that we're going to take a look at and just buckle up because this one is just gets absolutely insane it's really hard to even imagine what it'd been like to be around during this time period when this whole whole case was just going on and just all the madness i mean the satanic panic and all that was going on in similar time frames so the world was just crazy i mean all of us like to think the world's crazy right now but <laughs> if you look at history there's been so many parts of history where things have been way wilder than we could have uh-huh. even imagined i mean new york city particularly during this time period in the mid, mid to late 70s was just out of control yeah I mean, it was just a complete mess really and if i'm not mistaken new york had a lot of the major crime families yeah i mean not only they have the organized crime families but just like the city itself was just like on its last legs like oh rampant crime everywhere there was i mean there was a huge recession in the city was tons of businesses were you know going bankrupt and just crime was absolutely out of control so this all kind of happens in this time period and just the events that that kind of lead you down this descent into darkness is truly one of the most fascinating stories I've, I think I've ever looked into. So I'm extremely excited for this two-part series that we're going to do here on Lights Out, and I think you will be too. But before we get into the episode, I just want to thank our sponsors for today. We have Wicked Clothes, which I'm excited to tell you about, Anna Luisa, and Every Plate. Also, if you haven't checked out my CBD brand, Higher Love Wellness, can definitely help you chill out. It also helps you with a wide range of other things that can really just help mellow you out, you know, give you some peace of mind, help you sleep better. I mean, there's so many different benefits to CBD. And if you're looking for a source you can trust, I can assure you that my CBD brand is probably some of the best stuff out there. It's all grown, manufactured, extracted right here in Colorado. And it is some of the best stuff I've, I've ever tried personally. So if you want to check that out, that's higherlevelwellness.com. But let's not waste any more time because we got so much to cover here. So this is part one of the Sons of Sam. 
In the mid to late 1970s, New York City was an extremely tough place to live. The unemployment rates had skyrocketed after the recession, and the city was on the verge of bankruptcy, and crime was absolutely out of control. Previously thriving neighborhoods were deteriorating, and there were record numbers of violent crimes, including robberies, assaults, rapes, and murders, and the police department just could not keep up with all the crime. Drug dealers, sex workers, and squatters took over whole areas of the city and different boroughs, and middle-class families fled to the suburbs. And to make things worse, the city laid off thousands of police officers and city workers and cut municipal services like sanitation and after-school programs in order to try and save money and kind of dig the whole city out of its financial hole it was in. Young people turned to drugs, vandalism, theft, and violence. And in the midst of the chaos, a string of shootings unlike anything the city had ever seen before began. On July 29, 1976, the first shooting took place. 18-year-old Donna Lurie, an emergency medical technician, and 19-year-old Jody Valenti, who was a nurse, spent the evening at Peachtree's Discotheque in New Rochelle, New York. Jody had driven them in her Oldsmobile, and around 1.10 a.m., they were double-parked in Donna's neighborhood in the Pelham Bay area of the Bronx, just, you know, casually talking about their night and what they had experienced. Donna opened the car door to get out and was startled to see a man walking quickly toward them, clutching a paper bag, and she said, Now what is this? And in a matter of seconds, he pulled a gun from the bag, knelt on the ground, aimed the gun with an elbow on his knee, and fired three quick shots. The first bullet killed Donna instantly, and the second hit Jody in the thigh, and the third actually missed. The man then stood up and quickly walked away. Jody survived and was able to describe the shooter to the police. He was a white man in his 30s, about 5'8 and 200 pounds. He was pale with short, dark, curly hair. Donna's father described the same man who he saw sitting in a yellow Volkswagen nearby. Other neighbors saw the same yellow car cruising through the neighborhood just hours before the shooting took place, but no one recognized the car or the driver. The police were used to crime and violence, so this shooting wasn't really that unusual. But what was odd was that the shooter seemed to have no motive. He didn't try to sexually assault the women or rob them. He just literally walked up to them, shot them, and then fled. So after this, that's really all the information that they had, and the case was added to the pile of violent crimes in the city and just basically got lost in the shuffle. But then, a few months later, on October 23rd, 1976, it happened again. 20-year-old Carl De Niro, a city bank security guard, was hanging out in a bar when he saw his friend Rosemary Keenan, an 18-year-old Queens College student, and the pair started talking and decided to leave together around 1.45 a.m. Rosemary drove them to a quiet neighborhood in Flushing, Queens, next to Bound Park. And as they sat in the parked car, the windows suddenly shattered. Carl felt like the car had exploded. Pieces of glass just became embedded in his hands and everywhere else. All while this was happening, he started screaming for Rosemary to start the car, which she did, and turned the key on and stepped on the gas. And the next thing that Carl remembered was that he was waking up in the hospital with a splitting headache around 4 a.m. Two detectives came in to talk to him and asked him if they should call someone. And Carl said, oh, as long as I'm home by 7 that morning, you know, there's no need to alert my parents. But that's when the detectives told him that, well, you're not going home at 7 a.m. because you have been shot in the head and you need a metal plate in order to replace a piece of your skull. The shots had actually missed Rosemary, so she had escaped with minor wounds, some cuts from the shattered glass. But everything happened so quickly that neither of them saw who the shooter was. Rosemary's father was a 20-year veteran of the NYPD, 
so this shooting was taken very seriously. The bullets that they found in her car were 44 caliber, but they were so damaged that the police knew it'd be nearly impossible to match them to a gun. And again, it seemed like the shooter had no apparent motive. He didn't try to attack the couple, you know, assault them, or try to rob them. But since it happened in a different borough, there was no reason for them to link it to the first shooting. And again, the investigation just went nowhere. And then just over a month later, on November 27, 1976, there was another random shooting in Queens. A few days after Thanksgiving, two high school students, 16-year-old Donna DeMassey and 18-year-old Joanne Lomino, had gone to a late movie and then walked back to Joanne's house in Floral Park, Queens. And just before 1 a.m., they were outside talking when a man in military fatigues approached them to ask for directions. He didn't look much older than them, maybe early 20s, and he spoke in a high-pitched voice. They turned to him when he said, Can you tell me how to get and his words were cut off by the deafening sound of two gunshots. He then shot the apartment building several times before fleeing the scene. A neighbor actually heard the shots and came out in time to see a blonde man with a gun running by him. Donna had been shot in the neck, but was able to make a full recovery. Joanne, on the other hand, was shot in the back and was in critical condition. She survived, but she was permanently paralyzed. And based on their description, the police were able to make a composite sketch of the suspect. Just like the shooting in Queens the month before, there seemed to be no motive. Why was this guy running around and randomly shooting people? And it was just as if these young people were just being used for target practice. And then like the other shootings, another month went by, and then before you knew it, it was a few months. And on January 30th, 1977, the shooter struck again. This time, the targets were a little bit older. 26-year-old Christine Frond, a secretary and her fiancé, John Deal, a 30-year-old bartender were parked outside the Forest Hills train station in Flushing, Queens. They had just come home from seeing the movie Rocky and were heading to a dance hall. At about 12.40 a.m., John heard what he thought was an explosion, and he turned to Christine and she had collapsed into his arms while he screamed her name. Still having no idea what had happened, he sped away to get help. Three bullets had been shot into the vehicle, two of them hitting Christine, and she died several hours later in the hospital. John survived with minor injuries from the shattered glass, but he hadn't seen the shooter. And the police were surprised by how large the bullets were. The bullets, again, were seemingly from a 44 caliber revolver. And if you're not familiar with firearms or bullets, a 44 caliber is actually a fairly large bullet. I mean, if you get shot in close range with a 44 caliber bullet, it's going to do serious damage. I mean, it's meant to kill. I mean, that's basically what it's for. It's going to kill anything you know, especially at short range like that. I mean, it's crazy that some of these people are actually were able to survive some of these wounds, but I mean, we're dealing with a, a massive bullet that's going to do a ton of damage, both externally and internally. The media ended up reporting the story as a young woman shot to death in Flushing, Queens, and the police still had no idea why. At this point, the community was starting to feel on edge because they were like, who's this madman running around shooting people point blank, you know, not doing anything whatsoever. And the police still had no suspects and no motive for the shootings. And that would be so tough to deal with, knowing you're not safe no matter where you go, pretty much. Yeah. You could be shot at any point like that. Right. Uh, yeah, scary time. And especially since, you know, the shootings are starting to happen in multiple places across the city and not mm-hmm. just in one. So, like, if you've never been to New York City before, it's um, it's one of the biggest cities in the world. So many streets, man. Yeah, and, like, there's, they call them boroughs. They're, like, 
I guess, different suburbs like of New York City uh-huh. or Manhattan and big, big areas of, you know, land and where people live and tons of neighborhoods. So, you mm-hmm. know, when you're jumping from Queens to the Bronx to all these different places, I mean, it's, you know, it's not like it's just down the street. You're in this next area. I mean, these are huge neighborhoods across across New York City. So it, it was starting to, you know, that's why they weren't able to kind of connect things so quickly because it's just right. the vast expanse of the city so large that you know you have all you know you have new york city police department but Uh you've got all these different substations everywhere and uh yeah i mean it's just it's a wild place i actually went to new york city gosh it was probably like eight years ago yeah when i was in new york city i actually got the uh privilege to go on a ride along with some new york city like uh narcotics detectives and it was probably one of the most interesting experiences (laughs) of my life because i remember you telling me about it yeah, we went to a place called the Rockaways, which was very interesting and, you know, a lot of projects, mm-hmm. uh, housing like that. And I mean, these are really, really tough neighborhoods. So. Yeah. But it's just the sheer amount of people there are right. and how large the city so is. So overpopulated, mind. I mean, saturated. Right. So like one person running around shooting people mm-hmm. in millions and millions of people, it's like a needle yeah. in a haystack. So it's, and I was going to say, there's clearly not enough police to cover every spot right. in that city. You yeah. Know? And especially during this time, I mean, they just cut a ton of police Majority officers of off the force. So they're, yeah. they're already short staffed Yeah, and they have this madman running around just shooting people point blank. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's scary. That's scary to think about and seemingly targeting, you know, couples or uh-huh. women, young women that are, you know, out late at night. Right. So nobody felt safe. Everybody was worried that, you know, I can't be out late at night. Cause uh-huh. I don't know if there's this, this killer on the loose. Right. right I'd be so on edge. Yeah. So I it, get it. People were really, really starting to get, you know, anxious about, you know, when's this guy going to get caught? Right. But again, the the media was just starting to kind of put the pieces together and kind of connect the dots for people. So they didn't really know the whole magnitude of, of the situation. But then on March 8th, 1977, there was another shooting in Flushing, Queens. And this time it wasn't in the middle of the night. It was actually early in the evening, around 7.30 p.m. Virginia Voskerichian, a 19-year-old Columbia University student, was walking home after her last class of the day, carrying her textbooks in her arms. She lived about a block away from where Christine Frond had been shot five weeks earlier. And this area was considered a safe area, just a quiet neighborhood with very little crime. There were other people around, and she had no reason to think that she was in danger. And while she walked, she was suddenly confronted by a man with a gun. And she had just enough time to lift her textbooks in front of her face before he fired. And the bullet went right through the books and into her head. She had been shot point blank in the face and killed instantly. Witnesses who saw her body on the ground saw blood spewing from an open face wound, and which was obviously traumatizing to witness. Some officers had suspicions that all these shootings were connected, but detectives continued to tell the media that they had no reason to think it was the same shooter. But then the ballistics came back on the bullet that killed Virginia, and there was a match. The gun used in this and the previous shootings was a 44 caliber Charter Arms Bulldog. So they knew it was time to tell the public. The police held a press conference on March 10, 1977, and they announced that they believed the same 44 caliber pistol had been used in multiple shootings, and the target appeared to be young women with long, dark hair, often sitting in parked cars with their boyfriend or friend. And, you know, they were looking for suspects at this point, multiple suspects, and anyone with any information was urged to come forward 
even if it was just the name of someone they knew who owned a 44 caliber gun. They released composite sketches of the blonde man who shot Donna DeMassi and Joanne Lomino in Floral Park, and the man with dark curly hair who shot Donna, Loria, and Jody Valenti in the Bronx. And this was the start of one of the biggest manhunts in New York City's history. The NYPD formed a 200-person task force called Operation Omega, run by Deputy Inspector Timothy Dowd. The media coverage exploded after this press conference, and local newspapers were competing for the most shocking headlines. And the more graphic the coverage, the more issues they sold. And soon the story was making headlines around the world, and the press nicknamed the shooter the 44 caliber killer. The task force tracked down every person they could find who owned a yellow Volkswagen or a 44 Bulldog revolver and interviewed thousands of people, but nothing panned out. Meanwhile, New Yorkers were terrified to leave their homes. No one went out alone, and places where young people hung out, like Lover's Lanes, were empty. No one sat in parked cars or chatted on porches, and stopping for a goodnight kiss was suddenly the most dangerous thing you could do. Stores sold out of pepper spray and pocket knives. Young women stopped wearing their hair down, and they flocked to salons to get their hair cut short and dyed blonde. They cleared out wig shops, and beauty supply stores couldn't keep up with the demand. On April 17, 1977, just a little over a month after the police press conference, the next shooting happened. 18-year-old Valentina Serrani, a layman college student and aspiring actress and model, was with their boyfriend, Alexander Asau, a 20-year-old tow truck driver. They were parked about a block from her home on the Hutchison River Parkway service road in the Bronx. It was just a few blocks away from where Donna and Jody had been shot the previous summer. At about 3 a.m., a neighbor heard three gunshots and called the police. And when police arrived on the scene, they found Valentina in the driver's seat. She had been shot in the head and died instantly. Alexander had been shot twice in the head as well and was rushed to the hospital. But he died the following night around 9 p.m. The bullets also matched those of the previous shootings. But that wasn't the biggest lead. For the first time, the shooter left something else besides bullets behind. A handwritten letter was left at the crime scene, and it was addressed to NYPD Captain Joseph Borelli of Queen's Homicide and the Omega Task Force. The shooter referred to himself as the son of Sam and said he was commanded by Father Sam to go out and kill. In the letter, he included a warning. Police, let me haunt you with these words. I'll be back. I'll be back. Signed, Yours in Murder. Mr. Monster. The full letter wasn't released to the public, but the media learned the killer's given identity, and the 44 caliber killer was quickly replaced with the son of Sam. The language of the letter was unnerving, cryptic, and just downright terrifying. Joseph Borelli had four daughters, and 24-hour surveillance was then set up outside of his home, and everyone was on edge, even more so than before. On May 26, 1977, the police released a psychological profile of the shooter. Psychologists studied the letter and determined that the writer was likely a paranoid schizophrenic who equated murdering with sexual gratification. They also theorized that there was a possible satanic connection, like the son of Satan, and that this person believed he was a victim of demonic possession or had demonic power. He was likely a loner who had issues with women and difficulty in relationships. But all they knew for sure was this person wanted to be heard and enjoyed taunting the police. 
reminds me a lot of the Zodiac killer case. If you know anything about that, the cryptic letters. I mean, yeah, you would think that it would happen more often than not where you have serial killers leaving behind cryptic, really cryptic letters like this. But it, I feel like it doesn't happen as, as commonly as you think. And I think probably because we've moved into this technological age where nobody writes letters anymore. No. You know, it's like emails or, you know, social media posts, things like that. Right. But, I mean, there's just something so eerie about, you know, you know, especially being a detective or something, you arrive on a scene and there's this creepy letter that's written uh-huh. like addressed to you left behind. It's like a clue almost. Yeah. It's like it's wanting you to play the game. With Let's them. play a game. Yeah. That's literally what it is. Right. Man. I mean, there's something, you know, they want to be noticed. They want to be, they mm-hmm. want that attention. You know, they want to yep. be talked about. So what better way than to leave behind a creepy letter? The Omega Task Force, now called the Son of Sam Task Force, started getting flooded with calls and tips. And based on this profile, everyone thought they knew the killer. Just days later, on May 30th, 1977, a columnist for the New York Daily News, Jimmy Breslin, received a handwritten letter from the Son of Sam. It was postmarked that day in Englewood, New Jersey, and was just as disturbing and confusing as the first letter. On the back of the envelope were four lines of text that read, Blood and family, darkness and death, absolute depravity, and 44. He also drew a strange symbol that included the biological signs for male and female and the letter S. And it almost looks like they were trying to draw like a snake. There were multiple strange new nicknames throughout the letter as well, like the Duke of Death, the Wicked King Wicker, and John Wheaties, rapist and suffocator of young girls. And it was signed. Sam's creation, 44. Jimmy consulted with the police about the letter, and they agreed he could publish a redacted version of the letter in the paper. The most alarming part read, Tell me, Jim, what will you have for July 29th? You must not forget Donna, and you cannot let the people forget her either. Donna Loria was the first murder victim, and the first anniversary of her death was coming up on Friday, July 29th. The police were desperate for answers. And they consulted with staff members at DC Comics about the handwriting, which looked a lot like comic lettering. And because of the reference to the Wicked King Wicker, investigators attended a private screening of the 1973 horror film, The Wicker Man, in order to search for clues. And the day the letter was published was the highest selling edition of the New York Daily News to this day, with more than 1.1 million copies sold. And once again, thousands of tips from the public flooded the Son of Sam task force, but they seemed further away from finding the truth than they had ever been before. The killer didn't wait until the anniversary to strike again, though, because the next shooting took place on June 26, 1977. That night, a young couple went to the Alphys Disco in Bayside, Queens. 17-year-old Judy Placido, a recent high school graduate, and 20-year-old Sal Lupo mechanics helper went to the disco together the disco was pretty empty because everyone was too afraid to go out at night and around 3 a.m judy asked sal to take her home he was parked nearby and as they got into the car judy said the son of sam is really scary the way that guy comes out of nowhere you never know where he'll hit next and then a second later she heard a sudden echoing inside the car and a ringing in her ears and she realized she couldn't move her right arm And she just looked at Sal confused. Sal saw that Judy was bleeding 
and he thought that someone must have been throwing huge rocks at the car window, so he jumped out and ran back to the disco for help. Judy, still confused, looked in the mirror and saw blood pouring from her head. She got out of the car and tried to run, but collapsed almost immediately. Sal had been shot once in the right forearm, but otherwise wasn't hurt. Judy was shot three times though, in the shoulder, the back of the neck, and in the right temple, and one of the bullets had missed her spinal cord by just two centimeters. So miraculously, she was able to make a full recovery, but neither of them saw the shooter. However, two witnesses saw someone running from the scene. He was a tall man with dark hair, wearing a leisure suit, and one of the witnesses got a partial license plate number. And just to put into perspective how bad things were during the late 70s in New York City, on July 13, 1977, just a few weeks after the shooting, a massive blackout affected most of New York City. By 10.30 p.m. that night, 10 million people lost power, and the blackout lasted all night, and the streets descended into chaos. Thousands of people went out looting, setting fires, and committing violent crimes against their neighbors. It's basically like the purge happened. I was thinking the exact same thing. Literally like, you know, scenes from the purge were unfolding in New York City when this blackout happened. Like just mm-hmm. fires everywhere. People are losing their shit, just going out committing crimes because they, I mean, they knew that police weren't going to be able to yeah, do anything. Yeah, that was their chance. They have no power. They don't know where to go. Communication's Damn. down. I mean, it's just absolute chaos. Like shit's just burning to the ground. Just, just wild, wild what was going on. Neighborhoods that were usually quiet and peaceful were literally burning to the ground. People were attacked and trampled. 1,616 stores were damaged, and there were over 1,000 fires started, causing over $300 million of property damage, which would equate to $1.29 billion in today's money. 3,776 people were arrested, which was the largest mass arrest in the city's history. That's crazy. They they would have had to taken them all to separate jails because yeah, you know jails would be overpopulated. Yeah, I mean this is across all the boroughs and stuff. I mean, uh, this is across huge parts of the city. So, but still, I mean that's still a ton of people to uh, arrest crazy. and book all at once. But what's crazy is that there was only one confirmed murder in Brooklyn. Confirmed though, investigators believe that the son of Sam was planning to strike again on July 29th, nineteen seventy seven which was the anniversary of the very first shooting. But after the blackout, the understaffed police department struggled to recover, and the officers were exhausted and overwhelmed. As you can imagine, the cleanup was massive, and there was still a serial killer on the loose. Police were working 12-18 to hour shifts, and some officers rarely went home. They were tired, stressed, and legitimately scared. But they couldn't let their guard down now, especially those on the Son of Sam task force which was now up to 300 members actively working on the case. On Friday, July 29th, hundreds of officers patrolled the neighborhoods of previous shootings. Many cruised the streets in unmarked cars, some parked on dark roads wearing wigs, hoping to lure out the shooter. Places where young people hung out were shut down. Parking spaces were covered, and anyone on the street after midnight was stopped and questioned. One person tried to flee and was immediately surrounded by six unmarked cars, and 12 officers so that just shows you that they came out in force yeah the whole city night. was technically on lockdown yeah i mean they they really thought that i mean as some serial killers do is they you know continue to kill on anniversaries of other killings and so that's what they thought was going to happen but when the night came and went with no shooting officers were you know relieved 
but they still were not closer to solving or figuring out who this killer was. So all they could do was keep working on the case and wait for the son of Sam to make a mistake. One year and two days after the first shooting, July 31st, 1977, the killer struck again. Stacy Moskowitz, a secretary, and Robert Volante, a clothing store salesman both 20 years old, were on their first date. Robert's parents had been worried about him going out, so he promised to stay in Brooklyn, as no shootings had happened there. Besides, his date was blonde, and the killer attacked women with long brown hair. Robert and Stacy went to a movie, and then went for a walk in a park in the Bath Beach neighborhood of Brooklyn. And that's when Stacy saw a man watching them, and wanted to go back. They were parked under a streetlight, and there were people around. So Robert wasn't worried and talked Stacy into sitting with him in the car for a few more minutes before heading home. But just a few moments later, a man stepped within three feet of the car, aimed and shot four times, and Stacy and Robert were both shot twice in the head. Witnesses saw the shooter run into the park and a man and woman covered in blood. The man was screaming, help me, help me. It was like a scene in a horror movie. Robert lost his left eye and was left with just 20% of his vision in the right eye. After eight hours of surgery, the doctors gave Stacy a 50-50 chance of survival. But 38 hours after the shooting, she died. She was the sixth victim killed by the son of Sam. Several witnesses saw a yellow Volkswagen in the neighborhood before the shooting, and several could even describe the shooter. The police were able to release a new composite sketch, which looked like a completely different person than the previous sketches. Here's the police talking about the new sketch they released. We are distributing today the new composite drawing of the 44 killer provided uh, based on descriptions provided by witnesses to the shooting on July 31st. The description is as follows. Male, white, 25 to 32 years old, 5'8 to 5'9, 165 to 175 pounds, good athletic type build. Investigators theorized that he was wearing a wig since his hair color had changed and the length and texture as well with each shooting. The media speculated that there were two or more killers, but the police just kept on insisting that they were looking for a lone gunman. After Stacy's death, the pressure to solve this case was intense. The police departments and politicians were feeling pressure from the public, and people were losing faith in their ability to stop the killer. And as you can imagine, Stacy's parents were absolutely livid about what had happened and spoke out against the police and just the government in general to do something about what had happened to their daughter. And she would have been a vegetable had she lived, and my daughter loved life too much, and she would never have wanted it that way. And she lived with dignity, and she died with dignity. But most important of the people, that an animal should snuff away a life of a young girl, blind a young boy, and has killed others, and will probably go on killing. An animal like this has to be caught. In August, just a few days after the last shooting, they finally got a break in the case. Four days after the shooting, another witness came forward who believed she saw the shooter. Cecilia Davis was out walking her dog on July 31st. Shortly before Robert and Stacy were shot, she saw an officer ticketing cars on the street. A few minutes later, a man stepped out from behind a tree and looked at her. She continued on home with her dog, but moments later she heard the gunshots. The men come towards me. And he looked me straight in the face. He looked at my dog. And right here, 
we, we crossed each other. So he had his arms straight down. He had a long thing, like a bell sticking up his sleeve. And uh, he made a left turn. I heard a boom. NYPD Detective James Justice was tasked with checking every parking ticket from the area that night. And he found a ticket from Cecilia's neighborhood for a 1970 four-door yellow Ford Galaxy that belonged to 24-year-old David Berkowitz, a postal worker who lived in Yonkers. On August 9, 1977, James called the Yonkers Police Department for help tracking down David. The dispatcher who answered the phone identified herself as Wheat Carr, and she knew David because he was her neighbor. And it turned out he was actually being investigated for several strange crimes in their neighborhood. Apparently, David had allegedly shot a German shepherd on Wicker Street and a black lab named Harvey. And Harvey actually belonged to her father, Sam Carr. James was shocked by this, realizing that this could be their guy, that he may have in fact just found the son of Sam. From here, we're going to pause in just the story of the timeline of events, and we're going to talk about David Berkowitz a little bit. But before we get into his life, we're going to take a quick sponsor break and we'll be right back. All right, so let's dive into David Berkowitz a bit because he is a big piece of the Son of Sam case. And it's very interesting to hear about his background. So David Berkowitz was born on June 1st, 1953 in Brooklyn, New York. His mother was a young Jewish woman named Betty Broder. And his father, Joseph Kleinman, was a real estate agent from Long Island who was married to another woman when him and Betty got together three years earlier. At the time, Betty was a struggling single mom, working as a waitress to support her young daughter, Rosalind. Her ex, Tony Falco, had left her for another woman, and they never legally divorced. When Betty told Joseph she was pregnant, he didn't want to deal with another kid. He told her to give up the baby and said he didn't want his name listed on the birth certificate. Betty didn't want to lose Joseph, so she agreed. And before giving her son up for adoption, she named him Richard David Falco and listed her ex, Tony Falco, as the father. The baby was then adopted by Nathan and Pearl Berkowitz when he was just a few weeks old, and they reversed his first and middle name and ended up calling him David Richard Berkowitz. The middle-aged Jewish-American couple owned a hardware store, which gave them a modest income. David grew up as an only child living on the sixth floor of an apartment building on Stratford Avenue in the Bronx. His mother Pearl had told him from a young age that he was adopted, explaining that he was specifically chosen by them. And this didn't really sink in until he was about four or five years old when he asked his mother about his birth mother. Nathan and Pearl consulted with an expert about how best to handle these types of questions. And following this expert's advice, they told David his mother had died during childbirth. Growing up, David was a troubled kid. He didn't get along well with his peers. And even though he was smart, he never had much interest in learning. In school, he became a bully who got into fights with other kids and constantly misbehaved in class. Sometimes he would start screaming for no reason and refused to stop, and his teachers didn't even know what to do with him. The school officials told his parents David would be expelled unless they took him to see a child psychologist. So, not wanting their kid to get expelled, they took him to a psychologist once a week for two years. But this didn't help at all. His bad behavior just kept escalating. He was caught stealing and setting small fires multiple times. He had periods of severe depression where he refused to get out of bed or locked himself in the closet. Sometimes he wouldn't talk to his parents for an entire day. He'd just stay alone in his room, talking to himself. He also suffered from violent seizures 
that could get so bad he'd knock over furniture, and his father would have to hold him down until the seizure stopped. David felt increasingly isolated and withdrawn, and he would later describe an evil force that would come over him. And this force would compel him to sneak out of his apartment in the middle of the night, wandering the streets for hours, and then he'd climb the fire escape to sneak back in before his parents would wake up. He often struggled with suicidal thoughts, sometimes fighting the urge to jump from their sixth floor apartment or step in front of oncoming traffic. And when therapy failed to help, his desperate parents took him to see their rabbi, hoping religion might affect his behavior. But nothing worked. David often felt like he was going insane, and the only thing keeping him grounded in reality was his close relationship with his mother. All that changed, though, in 1967 when he was just 14 years old, when Pearl was diagnosed with breast cancer and passed away within months. This completely devastated David. His father worked 10-hour days, six days a week, in order to support them, which just left David alone most of the time. He was more depressed than ever and continued to lash out at school and skip classes. In 1971, his father remarried and his new wife didn't get along with David at all. As soon as David graduated, though, they moved to Florida. And just a few weeks after his 18th birthday, David enlisted in the army, believing this would give him the fresh start he knew he needed. So he served in Fort Knox and with an infantry division in South Korea. He became a skilled marksman, especially with a rifle. And while overseas, he had his first and perhaps only sexual experience with a Korean sex worker. However, he contracted a venereal disease which fueled his anger toward women who he felt had never given him the time of day. And he started having bizarre sexual fantasies that eventually turned violent. After his three-year enlistment period, he received an honorable discharge in June 1974 and moved back to New York City. His father had moved away, and everyone he knew from high school was either married or had relocated. And once again, he was completely alone. He wanted to learn more about where he had come from and about his birth mother, Betty. He found out that she hadn't died during childbirth as his parents had told him. She was actually alive and well. But after talking just a few times, Betty told him the details of his birth and adoption, including the two men in her life who apparently wanted nothing to do with raising David, which this crushed him. And he realized that from the moment he was born, no one wanted him, which this only shattered his already fragile sense of identity. And he felt more lost and alone than ever. So much so he even stopped talking to his birth mother shortly after. That is really sad that his whole family basically abandoned him like that. Yeah, you know? and it's got a huge effect on a human. Oh, like, yeah. To feel completely alone in the world, like no one out there loves you. No one out there cares about you. I mean, that's a really sad and dark place to uh-huh. be. And if you're already struggling with these other thoughts about you know different things, I mean... It's only making all that worse. Yeah, it makes it makes a lot of sense that, you know, he ends up the way that he does. But still trying to find his place in the world, he decided to go to Bronx Community College for a year and then work some odd jobs like a taxi driver and a security guard. Then he landed a job as a letter sorter with the U.S. Postal Service. And the work was steady, and it gave him some decent pay, which allowed him to rent an apartment in Yonkers and settle down. He was friendly with his neighbors, but mostly kept to himself. But on the evening of August 10th, 1977, the day after Detective James Justice tracked down David Berkowitz, four Brooklyn detectives went to Yonkers to stake out his apartment building on Pine Street. They had no idea what he looked like, but found his car parked on the street. They looked inside and saw a gun on the floor in the back seat. 
It was legal in New York to keep a gun like that without a permit, but they decided to break in without a search warrant anyway, which is a huge no-no. I mean, police can't just like bust into your car without, you know, probable cause, you know, if they actually stop you in a traffic stop or they have a search warrant. It's Mm -hmm. the same reason they can't just like come into your house and search it, you know? Right. We have rights. And in this case, they completely. Yeah. They threw that out the window because they were so determined to catch the son of Sam that they were like, Oh, there's the connection Mm -hmm. and rather go through the proper channels, which, you know, they, they would clearly regret later on. They just were like, Uh got him. Let's get him. They don't have, nobody has to know that we're just going to bust into his car and get the evidence we need in order to arrest this guy. And that's exactly what they did. Also inside the vehicle, they found a duffel bag with ammunition, maps of the crime scenes and strange cryptic notes in the glove department. They found a letter written by the son of Sam addressed to inspector Timothy Dowd, the leader of the Omega task force. And it talked about a planned future shooting at a disco in long Island. So they decided at this point, you know, we need to get a search warrant for the apartment before we do anything else. But before they got the warrant, a deputy sheriff who lived in the building came out to talk to the detectives and said he could identify David. He actually waited with the other officers for a few hours and around 8 45 PM, he saw David come out of the building carrying a paper bag. And as David went to go get into his car, the police surrounded him. And one officer asked if he was David Berkowitz and David just smiled and said, no, I'm the son of Sam and you got me. And as he was arrested, he just kept on smiling. He was also calm and seemed almost grateful that he had been caught. And inside the paper bag he was carrying was a 44 caliber bulldog revolver. The police finally got the warrant to search his apartment. And when they got in there, it was a mess. His stuff was thrown everywhere and there was satanic graffiti on the walls. They also found three stenographers notebooks where David had kept detailed records of fires he had set all around New York City. He had been keeping track of committed arson since he was 21 years old, listing 1,488 fires he had started. David was then taken to the Yonkers police station and then transferred to a precinct in Coney Island, where the Son of Sam task force was located. Around 1 a.m. that morning, the mayor announced that the man they believed to be the Son of Sam had finally been arrested. Here's the mayor speaking. I'm very pleased to announce that the people of the city of New York can rest easy this morning because of the fact that the police have captured a man whom they believe to be the son of Sam. After doing some ballistics testing, they were able to prove that the gun that he had with him, in fact, matched the weapon that killed Stacy Moskowitz and nearly blinded Robert Volante. David was interrogated for about 30 minutes before confessing to all eight shootings and all six murders. He seemed happy and excited to talk about the crimes. But what was extremely odd during this confession is that he explained that he had been ordered to murder by a 6,000-year-old demon who lived inside his neighbor Sam Carr's black lab named Harvey. The police in the city of New York celebrated, though. They didn't really think twice about David's confession all they knew is that, you know, we got our guy. He confessed to the murders, case closed. New York City is safe again, and everybody could finally stop living in fear. For a while, people of the city were absolutely hating on the police. I mean, they were super pissed that, it, you know, they hadn't caught anybody yet. They didn't have any leads. But that quickly changed once they caught David Berkowitz. 
In fact, the police got praised all over the place. But some people were not convinced that David was the guy or the only guy. In fact, David didn't look like the most recent composite sketch at all. And all the sketches still looked like different people. But investigators dismissed concerns that David Berkowitz had an accomplice. So some people started speculating that, you know, maybe it's not just David that was the killer. Maybe there's others out there responsible for these slayings. But investigators quickly dismissed concerns that David Berkowitz had any accomplices. And obviously they had to do that or else everyone else would go back into a complete panic. Yeah, I mean, I mean, we've seen this so many times in history where, you know, police departments, when things like this happen, they want, you know, they're under extreme pressure uh-huh. and scrutiny by the public and the media to solve a case. And so when they, you know, sometimes they they go in the wrong direction, they accuse somebody that's not responsible just to get the case closed. And in this particular case, there wasn't anything like glaringly obvious at first glance that would make them think there was multiple people involved. And they kind of chalked up the whole idea of there not being any accomplices to eyewitnesses, you know, who claim to have seen somebody that doesn't look like David commit one of the killings that they just saw something wrong, you know, like they were caught up in the moment and it was actually David or David was wearing a wig or something. And, you know, it it wasn't, it was just, you know, they were in the moment and made the wrong description when they made those other sketches. Right. I mean, that's a good excuse, I, I guess for the police just so they can cover their ass. Right. I mean, they worked months on end to, to yeah. find, you know, David. So yeah. And I mean, they, they felt like everything was like all their ducks were in a row. I guess mm-hmm. you could say like they got the gun. David had the gun. He also literally confessed that he was the son of Sam. And so they, they were like, Oh, this is easy slam dunk. We got everything we need. Right. You know, what else is there to do? Like, clearly this is our guy uh-huh. and he's not saying that there's others yet, but you know, they're like, okay, we're, you know, we did a good job. You know, everybody can go back to normal life, but <laughs> that, that was not the case That is not how it ends up. But that was the road that they went down because David was indicted for eight shootings that killed six people, and wounded seven. And he was sent to stay in the psych ward in Kings County hospital. And there he underwent three intense mental health examinations to determine if he was competent to stand trial. He spent four months in isolation, and according to staff, he seemed to lose all connections to reality. When neighbors and coworkers were asked about him, they described him as a nice, pleasant man who mostly kept to himself. And one neighbor said that the sketches released by police looked nothing like him. So there's just all this turmoil and, you know, even his own neighborhood that people are like, that's not David. Here's actually some clips of some neighbors and even a coworker talking about the sketches and what they thought about David Berkowitz. I think he was a nice man. He always spoke to me, said, hello, how you doing? Um, how do you like the weather? He was very nice, kept to himself. We worked together for about two or three months, and like we sat and had coffee together. And he, he, he did a lot of, you know, talk mostly about, he liked to go fishing, and uh, he did a lot of reading, liked to read, not, I think mostly novels, you know. But again, investigators were confident that they had the shooter, and Dave was able to provide detailed descriptions of the shootings, and he confessed to the arsons from his notebooks. He also talked about his first attempted murder on Christmas Eve, 1975. He attacked two women with a hunting knife in Co-op City, which is a housing development in the Bronx. One of the victims were never identified, and the other was a 15-year-old high school student named Michelle Foreman. And after being stabbed, Michelle was hospitalized for seven days. And crazy enough, his defense team used the escalation of his violent behavior 
and his claims about demonic possession to build an insanity defense. They claimed that he was a paranoid schizophrenic who lived in a separate reality, in his mind with the demons that he had created. And the isolation and break with reality caused increasing tension that was only relieved by an act of violence. And after each shooting, he felt better for a time, but the tension would increase again, leading to more violence. Despite this carefully orchestrated insanity defense, David ignored the advice of his attorneys. On May 8, 1978, he pled guilty to the six murders and over 1,400 arson charges. And despite his guilty plea, prosecutors still had an uphill battle to get a conviction. Because they broke into David's car without a search warrant, none of the evidence they found in there could be used in court. Which, how dumb was that? Very dumb. Like, they should have, like, I don't even understand why they just, like, jumped the gun and broke into it when literally they were going to arrest David, like, short time later. Right. And then once you arrest him, then you can gain access to his stuff. But Mm -hmm. because they broke into it before, they had to throw all of it out. That's breaking the law. Yeah. Yeah. It's illegal to do that. But David did not really help himself as far as, you know, not looking like an absolute psycho killer. Because at his sentencing hearing two weeks later, he actually lashed out at officers, kicking and even biting them. He then lunged toward the windows and tried to jump from the seventh floor courtroom. But the officers were able to pull him from the window. And David started screaming, Stacy was a whore. I'd kill her again. I'd kill them all again. The family of Stacy Moskowitz, his last murder victim, were actually in the courtroom. And her mother even shouted back at him. And there was so much commotion, his sentencing was delayed pending a psych evaluation. After this outburst, there is no doubt in anyone's mind that David was guilty of these crimes. The trial took place in June 1978, and David pled guilty and was sentenced to six consecutive life sentences. He spent a few months in another psych ward before being transferred to Attica Correctional Facility, a maximum security prison in upstate New York where he spent the next decade of his life. Attica is known for housing some of the most dangerous and violent prisoners in the country, and David later described his time there as a living nightmare. While still at Attica, he became an evangelical Christian and asked God for forgiveness for his crimes. He rejected the name the Son of Sam and prefers to be called the Son of Hope. A few years later, he was transferred to Sullivan Correctional Facility, another maximum security prison in New York, and he started leading a Bible study group and counseling fellow inmates. He's not allowed to use the internet, but his supporters run a website for him to chronicle his religious conversion, ariseandshine.org. And while in prison, David graduated with honors from Sullivan Community College. He also writes essays for Christian websites and contributes to projects for psychology, criminology, and sociology students. But he's never received any compensation for his work or for his story. The media coverage around the Son of Sam shootings made David a kind of a celebrity, and rumors spread that he was weighing multiple book deals. In response, New York passed a law that prevents criminals and their relatives from profiting from their crimes. And this was the first legislation of its kind which came to be known as the Son of Sam Law. After multiple legal challenges, including being struck down by the Supreme Court for violating the right to freedom of speech, New York passed a new Son of Sam Law in 2001, which is still in effect. Similar laws have been passed in almost every state. David's first parole hearing was the following year in 2002, and the terms of his guilty plea allowed him to be eligible for parole after serving 25 years. Before the first hearing, he sent a letter to the governor asking for it to be canceled, because he deserved to be in prison for the rest of his life, but the request was denied. He's come up for parole every two years since then, and David has never asked to be released. And eventually, 
started skipping the hearings altogether. David remains imprisoned at Shawangung Correctional Facility, and it's very unlikely that he'll ever be released. Many people believe that this is the end of the story of the Son of Sam case, including the NYPD. The Son of Sam murders were committed by a lone gunman who is now in prison for life, and justice has now been served for the victims and families. So we can close the case and move on. But there might be more to the story. Because a few weeks after his arrest, David was allowed to send a letter to the media. And in this letter, he said, there are other sons out there. God help the world. The police dismissed the possibility that David had accomplices. And for the most part, have refused to consider any alternative theories about this case. Others disagreed, though. And when they started to pull that thread, they unraveled a whole new version of the story. The case of a lone gunman may go much deeper than just David Berkowitz, as there is credible evidence that David was just a small pawn in a much larger game. A worldwide conspiracy centered in the occult, satanic rituals, and murder plots designed to bring chaos and destruction, and ultimately, the apocalypse. So it's very possible that David may have just been the guy who took the fall for a much darker and sinister circle of individuals known of the Sons of Sam. So in part two of the Sons of Sam episode, we're going to be diving into a lot of new information that came out through this docu-series regarding Mari Terry, who was a basically a New York journalist who became obsessed with solving the Son of Sam case And he went digging very, very deep into this. And he was actually the one that really found a ton of evidence for this idea that, you know, David Berkowitz was most likely probably not a lone gunman in these crimes. And that, in fact, there may have been multiple gunmen and perhaps multiple gunmen, a part of a satanic cult that could have spanned the entire country or even further than that. So in the next episode, we're going to go down all the rabbit holes and discuss all these alternative theories that are out there because it just gets wilder and wilder. I mean, and just to give you a sneak peek, basically what Mari Terry found out was that where David Berkowitz lived and where, you know, this dog that he claimed was speaking to him, that a demon was possessing this dog and telling him that that he he needed blood. Mm -hmm. Well, they found out that there's these tunnels near where they lived. And when they went down into these tunnels, they found satanic symbols everywhere. There was an altar set up and there was clear signs of satanic rituals that were taking place, Interesting, including animal sacrifices, blood. I mean, and multiple people they talked to said they've heard chanting down there. So there was literally satanic rituals happening within, you know, walking distance of where, you know, Carr, who comes into this whole story a little mm-hmm. bit more, which we'll dive into, um, who may, you know, the actual father sam and you know the owner of the dog and you know how david berkowitz may have literally just been you know a a just a small piece of this larger machine that may have been doing all sorts of crazy stuff in addition to you know killing people so get ready for part two because this is only the beginning of this absolutely insane case of the sons of sam But hopefully you enjoyed this episode of the Lights Out Podcast. I know I did. And I'm looking forward to diving into this more. And I promise you there's going to be things that even if you watch this docuseries, you're going to be be blown away at some of the things that they've uncovered 
from the work that Mari Terry did. I mean, he literally dedicated his life to this case so much so that when he died, he sent all of the evidence, all of the research, all of the papers that he collected over the years to have somebody else pick up where he left off because this could be a mystery that still could be going on to this day. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the depths of it, I mean, it's called descent into darkness for a reason because it literally could be something that is connected to so many other cult killings out there and like it's so many moving pieces that's all i think of it just get yeah it's absolutely insane so make sure you're subscribed to us on apple Podcasts so you don't miss that next episode because i promise you you will want to listen to that and make sure you're subscribed to us on youtube as well because we put tons of visuals in there joel works super hard on making sure that you know sure you get a visual story along with the audible version so Make sure you're subscribed on YouTube and Apple Podcasts. We really appreciate it. And don't forget to follow us on social media at Lights Outcast. Yes, please do. But that is it for us today. Thanks again for joining us for another episode of Lights Out Podcast. And until next time, Lights Out, everybody. <laughs>